0: Every October 13th, a few dozen, sometimes even a few hundred people gather on a small portion of the University of Pittsburgh campus where Forbes Field used to be, used to be the the home of the, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pittsburgh Pirates until 1970. Sometimes it's sunny. Sometimes it is raining or sleeting or snowing. It does not matter. These people, they gather and at one p.m. at one p.m. on the dot, a recording begins to play through these loudspeakers that have been set up for this annual occasion. Do you know what they have gathered to listen to? Game seven of the best of seven baseball World Series at one p.m. on October thirteenth, nineteen sixty, was played between the Steel Town Pittsburgh. Pirates and the mighty New York Yankees. With the famed lineup including the likes of Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford. And these fans, they gather each year with such eagerness. They gather and they they start to they actually reenact being a fan at that game on October 13th in 1960. They sing the national anthem at the same time the anthem was sung. They cheer for every Pirates' success. They jeer for every Yankees' success. Notably, there are no high fives because people didn't high five in 1960. In the seventh inning... They sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game at the same time they sung Take Me Out to the Ball Game. By the ninth inning, it's nine to nine. The Pirates come to bat in the bottom of the ninth in the seventh of seven games. And at 3.36 p.m., the very first Pirate to the plate is this 24-year-old second baseman, Bill Mazeroski, batting eighth. And on the second pitch, he sees he sends it soaring over the left center wall. And the crowd goes berserk. Oh, the announcers stop announcing. They just let you hear the roar and the people flooding the stadium. The lowly Pittsburgh Pirates have beaten the mighty New York Yankees in the World Series of 1960. Why? Why do people gather year after year regardless of whether, to relive that moment in just the same place at just the same time with all the same rhythms and all the same reactions to the game? I mean, what is it about David and Goliath stories? Whether in sports or other realms or, or the movies, what is it about David and Goliath's stories that we just can't seem to get enough of? This morning we gather to to hear and feel once again the actual David and Goliath story and perhaps in doing so we may arrive at an insight or two about what it is that makes us cherish these stories. So a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, he came out of the Philistine camp. That is how the story begins in 1 Samuel 17, even before the portion that we heard read today. And before the, the story even gets going in any direction, the narrator takes an extensive amount of time to describe this Goliath in detail. His height is described at what is probably a modern-day equivalent of six foot nine, unheard of then. Then there's this bronze helmet he wears, this bronze armor that weighs the equivalent of 125 pounds in our time. Bronze armor upon his shin, a bronze javelin on his back, a long-range offensive weapon. A spear in hand, a short-range offensive weapon. The tip of the spear, we're told, weighs the equivalent of 15 pounds in our time. And if that weren't enough, we read, he has another man, a shield bearer, who walks in front of him to take care of the defensive side of of everything. It's an incredible amount of time and detail the narrator devotes to this portion of the story, but it's underscoring a critical point. Often when it comes to Goliath, we are quite good at describing in detail they're imposing reality. I, I think of the many times I've gone to seek counsel from a mentor or, or a friend about some pressing challenge, some pressing issue, some pressing endeavor. Usually, I begin by exp, uh, explaining in great detail all the reasons this is just an impossible situation. Looking at it from this angle, this angle, this angle. I'm tr- I begin by trying to paint a picture of just h- h- how 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 sizable this fear is, this enemy, th- this impossibility. And I, and I want the person on the hearing end to feel truly the stature of it, the weight of it, the wrongness of it. I wonder what Goliaths we have described in recent days. Goliath. Goliath. Then speaks and speaks at length in our passage. He taunts the Israelites with such things as, This day I defy the armies of Israel. And upon hearing all of these Goliath's words and insults, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Likewise, I find we can not only describe some of those Goliaths in great detail, we readily hear their voice. Bearing down upon us, maybe in the form of overt threats or veiled threats, or in the form of intimidating words or manipulating words, or, or maybe in the form of self assured confident words. again, I think of the many times I have sought counsel from from a, from a mentor or a friend and, 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 and just the, about a challenge that is before me, and, and how often part of what I end up sharing. It involves the voices I'm hearing. Then he's saying, she's saying, they're all saying. And so whether the Goliaths before us are an enemy or enemies, or some sort of entrenched evil or ongoing injustice, maybe an abusive person, an impossible challenge, an addiction, the diagnosis or death itself. Goliaths, they have a way of consuming our reality, visually, audibly. They fill our calendar, too. Goliath, we read, does this same armor-clad taunting in front of Israel for 40 days. A long time he makes sure Israel knows he's there and he's not going anywhere. What do we name this day as some of the ongoing Goliaths in our country? Before the church, before our lives. Eventually, this young, unknown David comes onto the scene and seeks to stand up to this Goliath, and that's where the reading you heard began. David declares, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and, and fight him. And almost immediately, David is tempted twice in ways that could easily veer him or veer us from the choice to step forward. King Saul, you heard, he looks at David and responds, you're not able, not able to go out and fight this Philistine. You're, you're just a boy. He's been a warrior since his youth. How often we can name, not only name in great de- detail just how sizable and big and real our Goliath is, we can also name in quite a, g- a good bit of detail our own inadequacies. We are too young. We are too old. We, we don't have the credentials or the connections or the resources, certainly like, not like they have. We don't have the same safety net if this doesn't work. Many are the Goliaths of sin and evil in our world today, and we can name them. But how often we can be like those disciples who Jesus told to go and feed the 5,000 when the 5,000 are hungry, and the disciples respond, we only have two fish and five loaves. I wonder how often we count ourselves out of the miracle God has unfolding before us or even through us or to us. Because all we can see is how big the Goliath is, how empty-handed we are. David, you're, you're just a boy. Fortunately, David sees more than just Goliath and more than just his youth, true as those may be. He responds by telling Saul in great detail about the ways he has, in the past, protected his sheep from the attacking lions and bears. Actually, the way David summarizes the story is of protecting these sheep and lions is that it's God who's been most fundamental in delivering him each time. And so God will deliver him from Goliath too. Which is to say, you see, God, David is leaning on his God stories. As the temptation is brought before him that he's just not enough, he's just not adequate, he leans on the stories where God has shown up and God has worked in him and through him and for him and to him. And this, this, though nothing has happened in the story yet, this is pivotal. Because up until now the entire story has been crowded by Goliath's size and the weight of his armor and the booming voice over these small Israelites but now for the first time David has mentioned someone else God This was what was so powerful about Christina Bondeson's letter. Christina Bondeson, many of you know, our office manager, she wrote a letter that went out to the First Presbyterian Church Congregation uh, earlier this year, if you're on our, our email list. It uh, went out just a bit after that winter storm that did significant damage, right, to this Fellowship Hall Worship Center, uh, the, the accompanying hallways, classrooms, kitchen. And it was at that point, which we have been in this pandemic a long time, We had been apart for a long time there was acute grief over those we know we'd lost in that time span there was an acute sense of just how divided our country is and then layered onto all of that there is this water and weather damage of such significance and unknowns, it felt like there was this conglomerate Goliath. And it was casting a long shadow in every direction. And listen to what Christina does in her letter after naming all these various forms of Goliath. She goes back in history. In June of 1854, a few families felt God calling them to begin a congregation, a community of God's people. It wasn't easy, but they did it anyway. They moved the congregation to Georgetown and purchased land to build our building. It wasn't easy, but they did it anyway. They endured a civil war and reconstruction, not always on the right side, and it wasn't easy, but they did it anyway. During the Great Depression, they sold every piece of land they could just to survive. And though there was serious talk of closing the church forever, they continued on. It wasn't easy, but they did it anyway. They suffered division of the denomination, at times holding separate services for the northern and southern Presbyterians in the same building. It wasn't easy, but they did it anyway. This congregation has endured great suffering and great prosperity. And every generation, this congregation has been tested And time and again, it has persevered. The time is now upon us. This is our generation, and this is the trial that we face. Will we rise to the same level as our congregational forefathers and continue what they began? Are we willing to endure setbacks and hard choices and all the tribulations that we face at this moment? Or will we say, it's too hard, there's too much suffering. We can't do it. I ask you as a Christian, as a human being, what is God asking of you? He doesn't care how much or how little you can contribute. He doesn't care who you voted for or what your political views are. He only cares if you love him as he loves you. And whether or not you are willing to endure this fire, knowing that he will walk through it holding your hand and carrying you on his back when you've lost the strength to go on. It won't be easy. But we can do it anyway. Christina tells the stories where the church defeated the lions and the bears. Or most fundamentally, where God delivered the church in season and out of season. True, her email in that moment changed none of the circumstances. David's telling of, of the stories of God's delivering him from bears and lions does not at all change the fact that still before him is Goliath and a very real threat. And and yet, isn't it amazing when those stories start to get told? Goliath's size and his voice no longer consume all of the space because the stories begin opening us to imagine a wholly new possibility. What What if Goliath doesn't win? What if this God really is part of the equation? How critical it is in our time to know our God's stories. For often they are the first daylight breaking upon the shadow of Goliath. And then, just as David begins moving to face Goliath, he encounters the second temptation that often comes along and could have easily veered him or any one of us. Saul, we heard, clothes David with, with, with Saul's own armor, puts on a bronze, helm, bronze helmet on David, clothes him with a coat of mail. David uh, strapped Saul's sword over the armor. How often we assume we have to fight fire with fire, armor with armor, resources with resources, money with more money. If Goliath is before you, then, then you have to figure out how to be Goliath back at Goliath. And David tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to this. He immediately feels the awkwardness of it, the weight of it. And in truth, the thing that's most awkward about this armor is not just the newness of it or the weight of it, but the fact that this just isn't what David has understood himself to be relying on. He makes that most clear in his speech you heard to Goliath where he says, the Lord does not save by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. And he will deliver you into our hands. So David, you heard he sets aside the armor and goes with five smooth stones. David's story in many ways anticipates what we read in the New Testament, particularly the book of Ephesians, which declares that most fundamentally our struggle is not against flesh and blood or against the rulers or authorities but against, sorry, the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. And if that is the essence of the enemy of hand, then it's, it's not about making sure we, we have to fight back them with the exact same resources and ways as Goliath because the true battle is being fought on another plane. What we hear commended in Ephesians is, is far less weighty, far more enduring, far more effective. We read, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Have the truth who is Jesus embrace your very being. With the blessed breastplate of, of righteousness in place, have, have Christ's goodness and his way firmly upon your heart your conviction. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of of peace. May your feet be held with an eagerness for for peace, not just the absence of conflict, but but the fullness of God's goodness in all parts of society. May your pace and direction be one that proclaims peace. Oh, may that cover your shoes, your feet. Take up the shield of faith. May, May your singular defense in this world be an ongoing trust in God, in God's provision. Take up the helmet of salvation. May may your mind be kept in the knowledge that it is Jesus who delivers, Jesus who is delivering, and Jesus who shall deliver. May that anchor your heart, your courage. And then take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. May the only offensive weapon you have be God's word, God's power, known through God's spirit I mean can you imagine what a difference it might make if if all the time we took trying to to keep up with and armor up like Goliath and think of all the ways that it's just not going to work before Goliath if instead we risked a far more lightweight option we prayed the wardrobe of God upon ourselves believing this God who was faithful in the past we have our stories Will be faithful again. I think at least one of the reasons people love hearing David and Goliath stories, people are willing to sit in rain and sleet and snow to hear a David and Goliath story, is because we recognize deep down. That it is before Goliaths of every stripe that we live our days. They fill our space, they fill our calendars, and we ache to know that Goliath is not entrenched. Goliath does not have to prevail, that there, there is another hope, and that hope is actually very much at hand. More, I think, will show up in the rain, the sleet, and the snow, and even reenact entire David and Goliath stories because we ache not just to to know afresh that story and that anchoring hope, but but we ache most fundamentally to to embody that story ourselves, to, to live that story. We long to remember again and again as we stand before any number of the very real Goliaths of sin and death and evil in this world that we have in our emptiness everything that we need. We have the grace of God made known through the stories of God's faithfulness time and again. And we have the grace of God made known through the spirit-endowed armor we receive time and again in prayer. Which is to say we have God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Goodness, even if, all, if the Goliath of all Goliaths, death itself, even when that Goliath puts us six feet under, even then, and actually especially then, there we proclaim still stronger, empty-handed love who has conquered the power of death in his rising. We love. Those David and Goliath stories, for every one of them is an echo of the story in which we live, in which we find hope, and from which we find the courage to take the next step, knowing that truly we have everything that we need. Amen.